0: And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Monday, May 22nd, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temen. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, we hear from Justice Inspector General Michael Horowitz as we launch our special series, The Worst Place to Work in the Federal Government. Plus, the Patent and Trademark Office wants to improve the security of its crown jewels. Those stories much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, before we get to the worst place, we turn to NASA, the perennial best place to work in those rankings from the Partnership for Public Service. NASA senior leaders say it's because they focus on their employees from the time they interview as applicants to the time they retire. The rankings happen naturally. For more, during Federal News Network's customer experience exchange, Jason Miller spoke with the associate administrator for NASA's Mission Support Directorate, Bob Gibbs.
1: I will tell you, we've never had a meeting saying, how are we going to improve or how are we going to get good scores on our FEVS? I would say there's some very strong cultural foundation that's established at NASA, which is you have leaders that care about their people and people that care about the mission. I think... That sounds very simplistic, but it's been built over decades and decades of an incredibly challenging mission with great people giving their all to try and make some incredible things happen, not only for the nation, but for the world. So it's always an interesting conversation. You know, I have a, I have a good time when I talk with some of our colleagues or some of our friends, and I say, well, you have to go get astronauts first. And after you get some astronauts, you need to you know go to the moon and those sorts of things. It's really not that. It's about listening to your employees. It's about caring what they have to say. Um, And again, it may sound simplistic, but I think you can go a long ways if you actually listen and you're willing as a leadership team to take action on what you've heard. It sounds like it's a little bit of a a
2: recipe going on here, right? Leaders who care about the people, people who care about the mission, all of a sudden you have success. Do you think about it in that sense, the way we have... A little bit of salt, a little bit of baking powder, a little bit of flour, a will put some water in there and then the bread rises. Mm. Is, is it in that vein at all that you're thinking about it? Uh, that, uh,
1: what's the recipe for success? I'm not sure, to be honest. What I would tell you, I think, from my perspective, it's a thing that you live every day. You demonstrate it through your behaviors and through your actions. You know, we are blessed with a great workforce and incredible people trying to do incredible things. But it's not that we sit there and say, okay, I need to mix this a little bit more and that a little bit more. It's again, you know, really understanding what are the things that we need to deliver on the mission, right? Mission first, people always, is sort of the short tagline that we use. And I think we live that.
2: One of the things that, when it comes to this idea of people, and I heard this just recently, uh, employee engagement equals customer experience, right? Better employee engagement, better employee experience. So let's start with that, that, Idea of impl- improving the employee experience. You talk about management listening. You're in the mission director. You're associate administrator. I think uh, mm-hmm. when we first talked several years ago, you were the chief human capital oh, officer. That's... What is it about? How do you listen to your employees? How, what's and then how do you hear them too?
1: Because there's a difference sometimes. There's a big difference sometimes. Uh, well, I would start with this. I would start with you know if you really want to understand how engaged the workforce of NASA is and does that really change the public perception or the public's interaction. Pretty much talk to anyone from NASA. They will, they, will, they will talk to you about our mission, about what we're doing. They'll talk to you about the people at the agency, about how our job is to inspire, to help all, right? We are for the benefit of all science, exploration, all of these great missions that we do for the benefit of all. But if you talk to anyone in NASA, that comes through. It almost goes back to some of the discussions that JFK had at Rice where he talked, about, talked to a janitor and he was telling me he was going to the moon and kind of explained how he saw himself. You know, I would say, draw that forward to today, the Artemis architecture, which is being released shortly, really kind of does the same thing. It sets the framework for the agency so that all of the agency and all of our partners, national and international, can see themselves in that equation. Um, When you're talking about listening to employees, it's having an honest conversation. You You have to be willing as a leader to say, I don't know. You know, we don't have an answer for that yet but we are going to work on that, and you're going to, I'm accountable to you for answering the questions you have asked. So I think there is a big difference to folks talking and being heard. I think there is a very big difference there.
2: I'm going to tag back to the Artemis yeah. architecture, and I know there's only so much you can say about it, but you, you tag back to the famous John F. Kennedy, President Kennedy's mm. uh, discussion about the janitor, and I've heard uh, the story before about, sure. you know, what do you do? I'm getting us to the moon. Did you have that, lack of a better word, conscious discussion with Artemis Architecture about how to connect it all? Or is it, again, you you start off with culture, and the culture just leads you to that path without having that, oh, well, what's the connection? What's the connection? What's the connection?
1: Yeah, you know, I have a great, I have a privilege of working for our leadership team, Bill Nelson, Pam Melroy, and Bob Cabana, not kidding, American heroes, right, and what they have done. And they've been very deliberate about talking about the roadmap for Artemis and those sorts of things. Um, I will tell you for the employees, when we get through this entire process, it will kind of lay out where we're going and how we're gonna get there and the role of everyone in the process. Being able to see yourself in mission is an amazing thing, right? I mean, I think it helps reinforce all the things we've already talked about, the engagement of the workforce, you know, leaders that care about their people, all of those things. Um, I think it's a little inescapable that at NASA, we have an incredibly challenging mission. We have technology that's unforgiving. We have science that is on the cutting edge. To do that, we need the best from our entire workforce. The architecture helps bring people into that, but also an environment where people can be themselves, right? They can bring their authentic self to work every single day. Um, We talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, and access and all of those things. But here's kind of how it lives. You know, have we established that culture that accepts people for who they are and allows them to contribute their best to this incredible mission?
2: When you get together with the leadership and you talk about, OK, how do we make sure employees are we communicate with employees, how to
1: make sure that we're listening and hearing. So I think we do a lot of surveys. That's one way. Right. I wouldn't tell you it's the best, but it is a moment in time and it does give you some data. It kind of also can give you some interesting trend data. You know, really breathing life into our employee resource group, resource groups when all of the administrators, associate administrators, when the front office, when all of the leadership of the agency travels because we do travel quite a bit. Very small organization. Um, we spend time with the employee resource groups to hear what they're telling us, hearing from as many perspectives as we possibly can. Um, you know, I, I think it's beyond argument that a diversity of experience and a diversity of thought leads to a better team that solves hard problems, which is kind of what we do. Um, I I think from at least my perspective, and we've got some folks who are absolutely committed to making these things happen for the agency and for the nation.
0: Bob Gibbs, Associate Administrator for NASA's Mission Support Directorate, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. To watch the full interview, check out our customer experience exchange at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, We hear from Justice Inspector General Michael Horowitz as we launch a special series, The Worst Place to Work in the Federal Government. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. This morning, we launch a week-long series, The Worst Place to Work in the Federal Government. Having best places to work means some employees endure the worst places. And the worst of all, according to the rankings for 2022 compiled by the Partnership for Public Service, is the Bureau of Prisons, a component of the Justice Department. Its overall index of 35, compared to 55 for the Justice Department itself, is the lowest of any agency. And it dropped a statistically significant five points from the year earlier. We start our series with an overview of the BOP's workforce challenges with the Inspector General of the Justice Department, Michael Horowitz. Mr. Horowitz, good to have you in. It's great to be here again, Tom. And just review some of the work in recent years you've done on Bureau of Prisons
3: generally. So we've done a series of reports about the Federal Bureau of Prisons, about challenges they have with their infrastructure and maintaining their infrastructure. There are a lot of aging prisons across the country. We're talking about federal prisons now. Um, we've done a number of reports about cameras in the BOP and the importance of effective cameras um, to prevent uh, contraband from coming into the prisons, to prevent staff on inmate abuse, to prevent inmate on staff abuse, inmate on inmate abuse. Um, because when cameras aren't there, problems arise. Contraband, big problem in the prisons, and try how to keep the contraband from coming
0: in. Just a, a few of them. And they all, in some ways, can impinge on the workforce because if the infrastructure is crumbling, that means the workplace is crumbling, not just for the inmates, but for the people that have to go there every day. That's exactly right. I mean, whether you're staff
3: or inmates, you want to go to a building that doesn't have holes in the roof, for example, or crumbling walls or uh, bad uh, infrastructure just generally. Um, gyms, gym floor is uh, broken, other things that are problematic. Just one thing after another, people want to work in a place that's a safe place to work.
0: And a lot of the issues come back to the staffing shortages, which is a management, I guess, shortcoming in being able to fill the positions that they're budgeted for and authorized by Congress for. This came up in a report on recent one. You just did a federal correction institution at Wasika. What is that? Where is it and what's the issue there?
3: So Wasika is a all female institution in Wasika, Minnesota. Actually the facilities where the inmates are housed was a former dormitory for University of Minnesota campus that was sold Mm. to the Federal Bureau of Prisons. And we did our first ever unannounced inspection. We showed up on a Monday morning at 8 a.m. We called the warden and the staff to let them know we were coming at noon to do an inspection. Um, And we spent the week looking at the facility. We looked at, uh, we chose a female institution, all female institution, because we've had a huge problem with sexual assaults in prison on female inmates. We went to see how the prison was being run. The good news was it was generally well run. The warden was very cooperative. The staff there was cooperative. The problem was the infrastructure, for example. We went in the kitchen. There was a hole in the ceiling in the roof. Food had spoiled. The doctor's offices had to be shut at various points because of infrastructure ceiling issues. Gym floor had been damaged. Things that um, we saw, we went to the dorm, basement dorms, pipes running along the ceiling, barely above the head of the top bunk, inmate, wrapped in plastic because they'd been leaking. And this must be a minimum security type of facility if they even have those pipes within reach and that kind of thing. That's correct. And we chose Wasika because when we looked at our risk scoring model, Wasika was actually on the lower end. And since it was our first ever unannounced inspection, we thought, let's choose a lower risk facility, one that likely didn't have significant issues.
0: Yet we saw the infrastructure issues and we saw huge staffing issues. Yeah. What, tell us more about the staffing issues. That is, not enough corrections officers to cover the shifts properly?
3: Not enough corrections officers. One third of the positions were vacant, but not just corrections officer. Doctors, health care professionals, mental health professionals, those were down 25 plus percent. Um, and so you had this broad problem, and what it triggered was a cascading series of problems because you can't leave a, a, a facility without sufficient correction officers. So what did it mean? Well, it mean they, put, they pulled the facility staff and the educational staff off their regular duties to fill the correctional duties. They didn't do that on the health care because those were already short-staffed. So you ended up with facilities that needed fixing, having facility staff doing the other job, the correctional's job, and you had educational staff doing the corrections job, what did we find in the education space? Long wait
0: list for education and training programs. Which gets back to the statutory requirement on the BOP for providing programs to help reduce recidivism. That,
3: that's exactly right. The First Step Act, a bipartisan bill passed in the prior administration during the Trump administration, was all about training and, and fighting recidivism, and helping get inmates out of jail early through the right training. There were long wait lists,
0: and we weren't confident that people were getting the kind of training they needed. Wow. And what did the staff tell you? Did you talk to line staff people like the corrections officers and also the teachers and medical staff? We did, and as you might expect, there was a frustration
3: there. People want to do the jobs they were hired to do. Correctional officers want to have fellow correctional officers helping them staff the prison. They obviously appreciate the fact that education staff and facility staff come and work with them, but there's a certain recognition that you can't keep doing that, that you have to fill the jobs. And of course, education staff were hired to be educators, not correctional officers, and facility staff were there to fix the prisons. They weren't pleased to have prisons crumbling around them that they couldn't have time to fix.
0: Yeah, no wonder. I mean, imagine being someone who is there to teach or to administer in some other way, and all of a sudden you're on the floor. And that happens across the prison system, not just at the low security ones. It's been an issue we've heard about for years,
3: what's called augmentation in the prison language. And we've heard about it, and this is one of the reasons we wanted to be on the ground. We wanted to see how much of that was there going on. And so we had an example, at least at this one prison, of what it was.
0: We were speaking with Michael Horowitz, Inspector General of the Justice Department, and you mentioned, you know, there has been issues of improper sexual activity as we speak. A former warden has spent his first weekend in prison for sexual abuse in California at a minimum security situation, plus five other staff members. How widespread is this and what's your sense of the effect that that has on staff members that don't participate in that kind of activity?
3: It's a very significant issue. Um, This is what you mentioned occurred at the Federal Correctional Institution in Dublin, California. The warden, by the way, the chaplain there, was convicted of sexual assault Mm. on female inmates. Mm. Multiple other staff, as you mentioned, we have the cases are still going on. We are still investigating. That's not the end of our work at that prison. Hmm. Um, But what does it say to an institution when the warden and the chaplain are both involved in sexual assaults on female inmates? Um, And by the way, that's not our first chaplain case in the last few years. We had a chaplain case in the Berlin facility in New Hampshire for contraband smuggling, not sexual assault, but contraband smuggling, which is another problem we've seen. And I think it's fair to say that when you have thousands of honest, hardworking BOP employees who go to work every day wanting to do the job, wanting to make sure that they are not only making the facility safe and secure, but for many of them, helping inmates rehabilitate. That's the purpose that we want as well, not just punishment, but rehabilitation. You can imagine if you go to a prison and your day job and you end up working alongside or in an institution where the warden or the chaplain is doing that sort of thing, or your fellow correctional officers are doing that sort of thing. That's a debilitating place to be.
0: And as we mentioned at the top, the scores seem to drop precipitously when the COVID came in. Because you had just unprotected people with other unprotected people all mixing it. Officers work in close proximity to the inmates very often when they're out of the cells. I mean, it can be literally crowded. No vaccines. They were slow to get personal protection gear in there. What, uh, what's the sense of that whole situation? Are they past that? And what kind of work did you do there? So
3: we, we did uh, two widespread surveys of staff in two different periods of time to see um, in 2020 and 2021, how they were reacting and reporting what their perceptions and observations were. Then we actually just did our first ever inmate survey to see yes. how inmate observations were and look at the two of them to see if we were seeing and hearing the same concerns. And as you indicated, you don't do social distancing in a prison, right? It's a crowded place. BOP facilities are generally in uh, close to capacity or beyond capacity. Mm-hmm. And so they're not, there's not a lot of room to socially distance, as we all came to understand, trying to do that in 2020. Um, and so you saw a lot of challenges for the BOP. They, were, they didn't have a playbook for this. They didn't know exactly how to move forward with it. Um, and so you had frustrations by staff um, having varying rules, um, availability of vaccines, questions about mask mandates or no masks, Um, the questions for the issues for inmates as well. And the challenges there. How do we segregate out? How do we create a separate facility for COVID-positive inmates and try and keep COVID-negative inmates,
0: you know, COVID-negative? Sure. So you've had a drumbeat of reports over the years, as has the Government Accountability Office. And by the way, later in the week, we're going to hear from Greta Goodwin, the GAO resident expert, you might say, in the Bureau of Prisons. We also have a former inmate that's going to be on the show who made it not only out of the supermax, but return to productive life in society to this very day. Where is management in all this? So that's been the challenge,
3: I think, frankly, for the BOP, is to have sustained, focused management on these issues at the leadership levels. You know, I've been IG for 11 years. The new BOP director, Colette Peters, who came on board in August of last year, is the eighth confirmed or acting head of the agency since I've been there in 11 years you don't have sustained leadership, you're gonna have trouble coming up with the right budgeting, the right requests to OMB, the right engagement with Congress on these issues, let alone driving you know, a culture into the organization. Uh, there are 121 wardens across the BOP. Um, you need to have a team in place at the leadership levels. I mean, having a constant churn at the very top makes it very challenging. But what we've seen historically is a lack of a systematic approach to thinking about what kind of staffing do we need BOP wide? What kind of infrastructure money do we need? Our infrastructure report showed that BOP was asking for a tiny fraction of what it actually needed, even though it knew what it needed. We see staffing shortages in the healthcare area. Mental health issues. The problem here is if you don't have the right staffing for mental health, inmates don't get better on their own. They probably get worse, which mm-hmm. just drives costs up. You don't have to fix facilities. Anybody who owns a house knows if you let a house continue to rot and be damaged, it doesn't fix itself, right? It gets worse, mold comes, other things happen.
0: Should the Bureau of Prisons Directorate be a term appointment? Well, it's certainly something
3: that's worth considering because having this change every couple of years isn't working. There's there's really no ability to have sustained leadership if every time uh, there's a new administration or something comes up, uh, you end up with a new BOP
0: director. And in the day-to-day management on the ground, how do you deal with the fact that some prisoners are irredeemable, even though the majority may want to better themselves to get out and stay out?
3: Well, you know, you have this question and this challenge. I often talk about, which is, um, in the federal prison system. There are very few inmates who will not get out of jail at some point. There are very few life sentences in the federal system. Whether you think sentences should be stronger and harsher or more lenient, everybody can agree at some point inmates are getting out of jail. Everybody should agree that we want inmates to come out of jail reformed to some degree, not made worse but made better afterwards, and we want to cut down recidivism rates. And that's the challenge and that's the problem if you have a disaffected staff there because— They're not getting the support they need. They're not getting the staffing they need. They're not seeing inmates get the medical care they need, the mental health treatment they need. That cascades
0: to everybody. I mean, incarceration should be the punishment, but it shouldn't be a sentence to further deterioration of your health and well-being mentally, physically. The incarceration itself constitutes the punishment.
3: Right, I mean, it's a dual purpose. It's punishment, but it's, very importantly, rehabilitation. You want people to become more productive when they come out of jail, not angrier or suffering greater mental health issues because no one treated them. You often think about this, we hear about this every day, unfortunately, terribly now, about people with mental health problems on our streets. Well, when they're in our jail, federal jails, for example, they're in the federal government's custody. There's an ability to help and treat
0: them. That's a scenario that should be happening. Michael Horowitz is Inspector General of the Justice Department. Thanks so much for joining me. It's great to be here again, Tom. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his latest reports at federalnewsnetwork.com federaldrive Federal Drive, where we'll post the entire series, The Worst Place to Work in the Federal Government. Tomorrow, we get the first of several interviews from corrections officers themselves. We'll talk with Shane Fozzie, President of Council 33, of the American Federation of Government Employees. Be sure to take the Federal Drive with you. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, a fresh legislative effort to get federal employees back to the office. But first, the Patent and Trademark Office wants to improve the security of its crown jewels. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The U.S. Patent and Trademark Office recently expanded a contract to improve the cybersecurity of its main databases and to move the agency to that all-important zero-trust architecture. Here with the details, the USPTO's Chief Information Officer, Jamie Holcomb. Jamie, good to have you with us.
4: Great to be here, Tom. Thanks for having me.
0: And we also have the President of Trustwave Government Solutions, Bill Rucker. Bill, good to have you.
5: Good morning, Tom. Thanks for
0: having me. All right, let's begin at the beginning here. What is this contract covering? What is it you're trying to protect here from a database standpoint, Jamie?
4: Well, we have some of the country's most guarded secrets, and that's our intellectual property, those novel and unique innovations that our applicants send to us to get patented. And so what we need to do is ensure that when we store this in our databases, that they remain secure secure and that we have that sacred duty to ensure that nobody else sees them and so because of that we want to increase our security posture it's always been secure but with the new threats and the new vulnerabilities out there when we introduced new applications we want to ensure that our security is coming up to the new modernized standards as well we're doing a lot of things out in the cloud too so we want to ensure that we're scanning our databases and ensuring that all those new hacks and those new attacks are taken care of, monitored, and alerted.
0: And just give us a sense of the extent of the database, how large it is, and what's in there. This is used by patent examiners to look for prior art, that kind of thing?
4: Oh, that's exactly right. In fact, we have nine petabytes addressable online, ready to go for any of our examiners to search for prior art. And that's the term used when you're ensuring that it's unique, and novel that it hasn't been done before, any time in history. So it's a really sacred duty, and I can't believe these examiners do that. My hat's off to them for having the ability to search far and wide to ensure that these patents are that unique and novel concept. And so we have the security duty to make sure that we scan and we ensure nobody else is getting to those data elements, and that's what this new contract is doing us. We're trying to get to that zero-trust architecture maturing along the five pillars. And one of those huge pillars is data. And the data element is very key. Now, not everything needs to be protected, Tom. What we're trying to do is ensure that we're protecting only what needs to be and that other things, you know, PII, personally identifiable information, as well as BII, which is business identifiable information, information we're trying to keep those in a yellow status where what I was just talking about is in our red status. And then we have public information, which is on our green status. So in essence, I'm trying to create a wedding layer cake with a green foundation base, a yellow center middle, and then a red topping. That's where we need to put our most secure data. And that's where we need to ensure that we're doing all the scanning and ensuring, that we take care of all these new attacks.
0: I guess you wouldn't want to smash that cake into the groom's face with all those flavors and colors. And, Bill, tell us what are some of the latest technical trends in protecting databases? What's different between now and, say, in the 80s, 90s, and aughts?
5: When people look at protecting systems, especially when it comes to vulnerabilities, and really far before zero trust, scanning systems and workstations and servers and things were never really, you know, wasn't a big deal to say that vulnerability scanning was kind of a common practice. As data became more and more important, and obviously the amount of data became more significant, and then the contents of that IP, that's what the bad guys want, right? Adversaries are consistently trying to exfiltrate data out of environments. And so, by treating databases differently, people are able to raise their level of cyber hygiene, right? A traditional scanner that was built for servers and workstations just doesn't really apply to the database world. And that's one of the reasons when we look at our customers, they actually go and buy something that's purpose-built to protect their data and their environment, what users have access to it, what they can touch, what they can't touch, and then what's actually taking place on that database in real time, right? Because if adversaries are trying to exfiltrate that, They're going to be able to have controls around seeing what's happening in real time in those
0: systems. We're speaking with Bill Rucker. He's president of Trustwave Government Solutions and Jamie Holcomb, CIO of the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. And, Jamie, tell us more about the zero-trust aspect of this in relation to this expanded deal here with Trustwave.
4: Well, what I love about Trustwave is not just a license for a scanner – It's more of a service, and we're looking at even engaging more based on increasing our security posture and ensuring for cyber hygiene. And the five pillars are an outstanding way to discuss this. The first pillar, everybody talks about user ID and authentication, but that's just the first pillar of things. You do need to have multi-factor in the user, but you also have to have the second pillar, which is applications. As an example, why do we just start up an application at the command line and just let it go? Why doesn't the application actually have to authenticate into a server to make sure that that application is not vulnerable, that that application is authenticated and trusted? The number three thing we're talking about before, again, the scanning of the database and the data pillar. Number four was the network pillar, and that's always been encrypted, encrypted in motion, as they say. And finally, the fifth pillar is your devices, because a network is comprised of devices, including servers, routers, et cetera. Why do we just assume that a server is what it says it is? Why don't we have to also authenticate into the network that the server is authorized? So we use other products to ensure for authentication certificates on the device side. So in that regard, zero trust and the maturation along all those five pillars is essential to actually creating a very secure environment.
0: And Bill, tell us more about the scanning aspect of this. It sounds like you move from a occasional check over to maybe a continuous type of scanning of your database.
5: Sure, and it's part of the continuous monitoring mindset, Tom. Dovetailing into Jamie's comments on zero trust, we really focus on the user and the data piece, right? And so from a scanning perspective, we're looking at very deep dive inspection of the database itself, vulnerabilities that could exist in that. You know, if you take a comparison against a traditional scanner that's built for a server as a workstation, in a database they might check five to six hundred things. We're just under 6,000 checks of vulnerabilities inherent across different mainstream data stores, and also the ability to actually look at the users and how they're configured in your databases. Do they have the right privileges? Do they have access to sensitive information or high-value assets yet their passwords aren't secure enough, or they're using the same password on multiple high-value assets? So that's the scanning portion, really, that focuses on the vulnerabilities and the user's rights. And then the last component is really the monitoring of that. So think of you know, being able to see what's taking place on your database in real time and being able to know if there's anything that's an anomaly, right? A data exfiltration that is not of the norm that could be a leading indicator of an adversary in your environment.
0: Got it. And, Jamie, the USPTO is calling this a partnership. Why that and not just a contract?
4: Well, because it's not just for licenses. It's actually for service and analysis as well. And the fact is having a partner means that you can share in some of that responsibility. And although it might not be contractual yet, what we hope to do is find some advice and guidance along our journey, along our maturation in that data pillar. So we have high hopes that we're maturing that relationship, growing it, and becoming even more safe in our security posture.
0: All right, and what uh, happens next here? How do you operationalize all of
4: this? Well, we actually are implementing it right now as we speak, and I've been going to different conferences as well as getting people inside the PTO to look at our unique and specific configurations. One of the big items of vulnerability nowadays happens to be application API in the cloud. So we're looking at that in the future as a possible engagement. And of course, that will be put out in procurement and it will give everyone an ample opportunity. But why I'm saying it right now is because we're trying to ensure that that maturation matches the current attack surface that has increased tremendously with everybody working remotely in a hybrid environment.
0: All right, and Bill, a final word on how the cloud does complicate all of these security situations and getting to zero trust.
5: You know, as far as looking at environments, Tom, we're in a unique time frame where there's such a mix of workloads, right? We have customers that are still all on prem some that have moved all of their workloads to the cloud, but the majority of our government customers are still in multi environments, right? And so they need to be able to have a way to protect both and be able to see a common picture of what their risk assessment is. So one of the things that we work closely with our customers on, and and Jamie talked about the partnership, right? This is cybersecurity is hard, right? It absolutely has to be a team sport. So we do a consistent amount of work on trying to raise a level of awareness with our customers, whether it's cloud or on-prem, by helping them with the risk assessments that are specific to data. Because at the end of the day, I mean, people talk about cyber tools or, or scanning. My job to my customers really at the base level is really helping them make sure that there's not inadvertent access to data, right? If you boil everything else down, that's really what it comes down. There's other things with Zero Trust and ATOs and ensuring their supply chain is protected and insider threat. But it invert access to data kind of encompasses all those. At the end of the day, that's the accountability we have back to the U.S. government.
0: Bill Rucker is president of Trustwave Government Solutions. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And Jamie Holcomb is CIO of the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Thanks so much for joining me.
4: Hey, thanks a lot, Tom. I really enjoyed it.
0: All right. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, a fresh legislative effort to get federal employees back to the office. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Now there's a Senate version of the Show-Up Act that would get more federal employees to return to their offices to work. In fact, employees are getting a lot of attention in Congress, even as the debt ceiling uncertainty continues. We get the latest from WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. So tell us more about the Senate version of a bill that has worried, at least, some you know, federal employees for some time now.
6: Right. Well, it's certainly been getting a lot of attention in the House, where House Oversight Committee Chair James Comer has really been pushing it uh, for several weeks. And then recently, the Senate Republicans decided they were going to take up the Show Up Act. And the lead senator on this is Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee. She is highly critical of many federal employees, frankly, about where they're going and when they're not going to the office. And she just believes that, like Comer and a lot of Republicans, that not enough federal employees have been getting back to the office as quickly as they would like. They're getting some pushback from Democrats, as you know, who have said, well, there are a lot of positives related to telework, and that's not just exaggerate the impact of actually bringing people back into what are now many empty offices. But this is something that's uh, going to be seriously pushed now by the Republican senators Whether it can actually get over the hump and actually get into law is doubtful, but it's certainly going to be on the radar for federal employees and their managers over the next few weeks and months.
0: Yeah, and we know the administration is struggling with this, too, because it issued guidance to get people more at work, and that was the stated goal. I don't think anyone's actually paying a lot of attention to that guidance, to be honest with you, from what we hear at the ground level.
6: Right. And as we've talked about, there seems to be confusion about what it actually means for a lot of different agencies. It's interesting that this also came up in the House. Um, In the House Oversight Committee, there was a hearing last week related to D.C. And while it primarily dealt with crime, Mayor Muriel Bowser was in front of lawmakers for several hours. They did touch on the fact that there are not enough federal workers, in the view of many, heading back into those offices in downtown D.C. And it's interesting that there was kind of a grudging respect between the Republicans on the committee, who are often just firing political missiles at D.C., and the mayor. They both share a view that they do want to see more federal workers coming into the downtown buildings, Uh, both sides acknowledging the fact that there is simply a loss of a lot of tax revenue because those offices are not being used as much. All of the uh, attendant businesses that are around, whether it's for lunch or, or selling retail... Those are also hurting. So it was a really interesting conversation uh, between the mayor and many Republican lawmakers who are concerned about this.
0: Well, maybe the feds at home could order takeout from downtown. The <laughs> taxes come in, but they don't have to go to the office to get it. Not <laughs> suggesting that. But federal employees in a little bit more sinister and realistic way are probably nervous. There was the attack on the staff member of Jerry Connolly of Virginia, And this follows on the Paul Pelosi attack, and it follows on the attack on one of the staffers for Senator Rand Paul. And so there's a drumbeat of these things happening, and this is starting to maybe— coalesce into some real concern up there?
6: Absolutely. This has really shaken a lot of lawmakers because they've been talking about this for a long time. And now to see it actually happen, whether, as you said, it was Paul Pelosi, the husband of former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, or in this case last week, where a man who apparently has some mental issues came in with a metal baseball bat and just started whipping it around at staffers in Jerry Connolly's office in Fairfax. He was not there and then just flew into a rage and knocked up a bunch of equipment and everything. All of this coalescing to make lawmakers talk about this like what is going to happen with their staff members, with their family obviously lawmakers are very protective of the people that they work with and this has been talked about for quite a while I've talked about it with U.S. Capitol Police Chief Tom Manger over the last several months and in fact he testified last week before Congress and said look there has been a 400% increase in the number of investigations that they've had to carry out related to threats over the last six years. And it is way higher than it used to be. And they have put out field officers in California and in Florida. But there's a real discussion here on Capitol Hill about what kind of resources can go out to lawmakers and their staffs. Do they get more money for officers that are physically out in the field? Do they get more resources for intelligence? Do they get more camera equipment for example, to carry out security. So definitely a lot of nervousness related to this and a lot of attention going toward these attacks that have happened recently.
0: We're speaking with WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller, and then the Postmaster General, Louis DeJoy, he got grilling on something that's, again, a perennial topic, but it ebbs and flows depending on the economy and the time of year, and that is thefts from an attacks on postal workers out there trying to deliver mail and packages.
6: Right. This was the first time that he had testified before the House Government Operations Subcommittee in more than two years. And after they talked about some of the financial issues, which are always a perennial with the Postal Service, that was the one that lawmakers really honed in on. Particularly, Maryland Congressman and Fume, uh, who represents a large part of Baltimore, said they have gone from the issue of getting bad Delivery rates, which were a huge problem during the pandemic, to these issues related to mail being stolen and also these attacks that are actually occurring on postal workers themselves. And just looking at some of the uh, figures related to the complaints that they've had. The Postal Service, according to the Postal Inspection Service, has had close to 300,000 complaints about mail theft over a period of about a year. That's more than double what it was the previous year that it was measured. And they've also had a lot of check fraud reports where people are literally breaking in and taking checks and stealing money from people. And then you also have the increase on the attacks on the postal workers themselves. Those have gone up quite a bit. And Postmaster General DeJoy obviously got a lot of questions about that. What are you doing to protect the people that are delivering the mail? That was a question that Jamie Raskin, the Maryland congressman, had. And DeJoy really, frankly, didn't have a lot of answers. He said, look, I only have so many resources and there's only so many people I can get out to protect people out out in the field, kind of overlapping some of the things that we just talked about with lawmakers. So security, really a big issue there for postal workers.
0: And of course, the big anxious overlay on all of this is the debt ceiling talks that seemed to be an unhappy merry-go-round where the same broken horse keeps coming (laughs) round and round and it doesn't get fixed on the backside.
6: No, and the merry-go-round was moving fairly smoothly for much of last week, and then all of a sudden we found that broken horse once again on Friday. There was clearly some frustrations. They basically said, we're going to have a pause on these talks between the White House team and those close to House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, and now it looks like we're going to get into a little bit of a stalemate again. Part of this is because the fringes of both parties are now putting a lot of pressure on the negotiators. On the Republican side, the House Freedom Caucus, the conservatives saying, wait a second, we passed a bill in the House. How come the Senate is doing absolutely nothing with it? They issued a statement late last week, and I think that may have put some pressure on some of the uh, speakers' negotiators to maybe try to stand tall in these uh, negotiations. And then on the flip side, on the Democratic side, you have a lot of progressives who are really uh, concerned about these proposals from the Republicans that would make make more requirements for work requirements, for Medicaid, for food stamps, welfare programs, and the Republicans are pushing back on that. So while there was a lot of progress last week, it's going to be interesting to see how that carousel starts to grind away and move around again this week. Certainly, they are going to have to have some significant progress this week, because as we both know, the uh, pending debt deadline is potentially as close as June 1st, so that does does not leave a lot of time on the calendar for them to do this.
0: Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. Thank you for that roundup as always. You bet. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The 2023 edition of our May We Say Thank You campaign continues in support of Public Service Recognition Week that has passed and Military Appreciation Month. You can send a thank you e-card to a fellow federal employee or a service member or a customer if you're a contractor. Visit federalnewsnetwork.com and click on May We Say Thank You. Sponsored by NARF. 57 past the hour, this is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and the Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Temin. And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Monday, May 22nd, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, we hear from Justice Inspector General Michael Horowitz as we launch our special series, The Worst Place to Work in the Federal Government, plus... Patent and Trademark Office wants to improve the security of its crown jewels. Those stories much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, after getting some gradual hiring reforms done... Federal chief human capital officers have new plans to improve federal recruitment. The Chico Council established an executive steering committee. Now it's looking to make it easier for agencies to hire multiple candidates from a single job posting. The council reviewed its successes and its plans at a 20th anniversary ceremony. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman has more.
7: Working in tandem with the Office of Personnel Management, Chief Human Capital Officers, or CHICOs, are eyeing long-term changes for federal human capital and hiring reforms. Many of those efforts focus on the workforce experts themselves, human resources. Margot Conrad is Executive Director of the CHICO Council. The CHICO Council has worked together to strengthen federal HR in a number of ways over the years. Through the creation of HR University in 2011, through the CHICO Academy, by partnering with OPM to close skills gaps, developing career paths for 10 different specialty areas, and launching talent exchange initiatives like the HR Policy Fellowship. And now, we are developing the forthcoming HR career growth platform that will support the growth and development of the HR workforce. The council has also played a critical role in helping shape human capital policy. Early last year, we launched the Chico Council Personnel Policy Office Hours so Chico's could provide critical early input to OPM on important policy considerations like internship guidance, pathways program regulation updates, and telework or remote work guidance. In an effort to strengthen the role of the Chico Council as a whole, OPM had some ideas as well. In response to recommendations from the National Academy of Public Administration, OPM recently made two big proposals to Congress to try to reshape federal human capital. Kira Nahuja is director of OPM.
8: First, we included language clarifying that the council is to be permanently housed at OPM. And this ensures that OPM and Chico's are closely aligned to create an even stronger federal workforce. Second, we proposed uh, a new rotating vice chair for the council that would be a current Chico the NAPA report, identified this adjustment as a way for councils to be more inclusive of its members' views. And as OPM strengthens the council, we are also elevating HR government-wide. We will continue to build the capacity of the HR workforce with multi-agency hiring actions for HR specialists and training for these cohorts. In our FY24 budget, it includes a senior leadership position at OPM dedicated to workforce planning for federal HR practitioners. And we're developing an HR career growth platform to connect HR practitioners with career development resources, training materials and data, as as well as piloting an HR career path.
7: And along with some of the newer ideas, Chico Council members are also looking to scale up practices that have already seen success. Pooled hiring announcements are one area that some agencies, including the Department of Health and Human Services, find useful for mission-critical occupations and other roles typically hard to hire for. Bob Levitt is Chief Human Capital Officer at HHS.
9: We all share the priority for hiring and the ability to do so quickly and efficiently, particularly for like shared uh, positions, shared mission critical occupations, whether it's an HR professional, the HR specialist position, or an acquisition IT specialist. There are plenty of shared positions where we all will benefit from working together collaboratively um, in these processes rather than having separate processes consuming additional time unnecessarily so we get to leverage for example working on our side uh, with a recent shared announcement we work very closely with GSA and other departments HHS we work very closely with GSA what that means is that we get to leverage their subject matter expert brains in particular areas they get to leverage ours we get a better product that goes out the door for a solicitation we get a better hiring pool and we help identify the best candidates from that pool for the department. So shared hiring is, is a real significant opportunity for us to reduce the time that it takes to hire. Again, particularly for these either these mission-critical occupations or highly specialized areas where we really help, need to help support one another.
7: An executive steering committee, a committee housed within the Chico Council and created in 2021, is trying to broaden its role in human capital reform as well. The National Science Foundation's Chief Human Capital Officer, Wansi Gardner, is a member of that committee. Our
10: biggest goal was to be a sounding board
2: for the OPM director. If we didn't do anything else, we wanted to make sure that she had a group of seasoned HR professionals that they could pressure test different ideas, pressure test different things they were thinking about to make sure it made good sense. There's a, a, a feeling sometimes you can make decisions inside of a tower. But well, you're not actually on the ground doing it, feeling it, implementing it. What does it really make sense? We're at the table now when decisions are made. We advise, we give direction, and we give an impact how it's going to be played out to the, uh, our organizations.
7: While celebrating the 20th anniversary of the Chico Council, some reflected on the early days of the Council as well. Reginald Walls is former Deputy Commissioner of the Social Security Administration's Office of Human Resources and an original member of the Chico Council. Here's Wells.
10: Some of us came to the... Um council not knowing what to expect coming together like this. um, Some of our missions are quite different from others, and so it was just an exciting time. Uh, We all were um, curious about what this was going to mean collectively, but we were also there representing our respective agencies and the people issues that sometimes varied from agency to agency. It was daunting because I think, um, as has been alluded to, we never get the full body of resources we need to do the job we're expected to do. There was some concern that we would be made to have one size fit all and we often had those discussions and challenges. We shared a lot of tips on how we were doing things and there was a tremendous amount of innovation.
7: So where does the Chico Council think the federal workforce is going for the next 20 years? Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Veterans Affairs and winner of the Chico of the Year Award, Tracy Therrett, explained her vision.
8: In 20 years looking for a government that's more inclusive, where mothers, fathers, children see themselves in what we do because it adds value to their lives. And children want to grow up to be the new next director of OPM. They want to be the next Karen Ahuja. That's their superhero. Uh, They want to be the next Chico at the Department of Homeland Security. That they really see and understand what the government does and how they can be part of it. We're connecting with communities so that we stay relevant and we stay valued.
7: Drew Friedman, Federal News Network.
0: Check out Drew's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, we hear from Justice Department Inspector General Michael Horowitz as we launch a special series, The Worst Place to Work in the Federal Government. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.